First Class Fatherhood. That is where Alec Lace comes in with his popular podcast. And one of the most interesting was on a podcast. Alec Lace interviews high-profile fathers from actors to NFL players with a vision to change the narrative of fatherhood and family life. Welcome, everybody, to episode 626 of First Class Fatherhood, which is a family-made media podcast. And here we go. I have got a tremendous guest for you guys today. One of the top questions on every parent's mind these days is, should I or should I not get my child vaccinated against COVID-19, especially with the new school season upon us here once again? I know many parents are concerned. They hear so much different information, disinformation, reinformation. And I do know that if you even suggested anything other than the government narrative or government's thoughts on the vaccine, then you were just completely censored and banned and shut down on all these social media channels. And nobody knows that better than my guest today. Dr. Robert Malone will be joining me here on the podcast. I'm honored to have him on the show. I watched his interview with Joe Rogan. Uh, on the Joe Rogan podcast, which I think was probably the most downloaded or most viewed podcast or listened to podcast of all time. I was fascinated by some of the things he had to say. He's going to tell you about his own credentials. I mean, he really needs no introduction, but he is the man uh, who created the technology involved in the mRNA vaccine. Uh, He's got a lot of different viewpoints, and he has been banned and shadow banned and uh, censored uh, all up and down the mainstream media and all of social media as well. I invite you to listen with an open mind today. I know this is a very contentious issue. I just know that everything surrounding this whole thing with COVID has not made much sense. Things that they told you about a year ago have all flipped and changed, and now they're telling you they never said them. Uh, so So many causes for concern and alarm over the last couple of years. And and I'll get into it here with Dr. Uh, Robert Malone. And just for full transparency, I have invited Dr. Fauci to join me here on the podcast. He has uh, denied my request. I am interested in all different points of view uh, about the vaccine and about COVID-19 as it just really turned everybody's life upside down over the last two years. So Dr. Robert Malone will be here with me in just a few minutes. Please stick around for the interview. And today's interview with Dr. Malone was recorded on video and is available for you guys to watch on my YouTube channel. So if you'd like to check out and watch this video, get over to my YouTube channel, First Class Fatherhood, and subscribe. There's a good chance this interview may be pulled down from YouTube. If that is the case, I will throw it up there on my Rumble page. You'll find the link to that in the description of today's podcast episode as well. All right, I have done my best over the last two years here to really bring on uh, different dads. I know I had Dr. Mark Siegel on the show here. I had Dr. Oz. I've had some health and wellness dads on the podcast throughout the last two years to try to really uh, dissect and just get some new point of views about everything going on with COVID-19. A lot of things just haven't made sense about the entire thing as we still continue to see people react to it in different ways. It's, it's created a rift amongst families. It's really torn family members apart. Uh, it's become a very highly political issue. Uh, so I understand the nature uh, or, or the delicacy of this topic. Uh, so again, I invite you guys to uh, listen with an open mind. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it. Feel free to hit me up, uh, firstclassfatherhood at gmail.com. Let me know what you thought about today's episode. Be sure you guys are following me on Instagram at Alec underscore Lace for all my upcoming guest announcements. If you could, please help me spread the word about the podcast every father in your neighborhood or in your contact list. It really goes a long way to help me out. And let's go. Let's jump into this right now with Dr. Robert Malone straight ahead on First Class Fatherhood. Joining me now, First Class Father, Dr. Robert Malone. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. 
Thank you, sir. Thank you for the opportunity. And it's good to talk to you and your audience. Awesome. Well, it's an honor to have you here. Let's just start like this. How many kids do you have? How old are they? Uh, two boys. They're uh, 28 and uh, 34, I think, right now. Um, they're both married. Uh, we have two grandkids. Uh, and um, they're both fully employed. So as far as my wife and I are concerned, it's a win. Yeah, that's a success for sure right there. Yeah, I got I got four myself. My oldest is just about to be a junior in high school, so we got a ways to go, but hopefully to get where you are at some point down the line there. If you could, Dr. Malone, please, in a simple capsule form, just hit my listeners with a little bit about your background and what you do. So I'm a uh, Maryland licensed physician and a scientist. I've spent uh, most of my career focused on biotechnology, vaccine technology, biodefense, I have ties, uh, historically deep ties with the government and the biodefense sector. I've been involved in the development of many, many vaccines, uh, smallpox, tularemia, plague, anthrax, uh, V, Venezuelan equine encephalitis virus. I kind of spearheaded the project for DOD and NewLink that uh, was the Canadian vaccine for Ebola. And I got a company called Merck involved in purchasing that, and that's now the Merck Ebola vaccine. Uh, I, I also have been very involved in drug repurposing. I have uh, been trained at Northwestern University School of Medicine, UC San Diego, uh, Salk Institute, of, uh, particularly in molecular biology and virology, UC Davis, and Harvard University uh, for global clinical research. I'm a specialist in particular, not only in the science part of things, but also in clinical development, which is the techie word for how do you take a product through the clinical trials process. And I'm also uh, deeply trained and, and experienced in regulatory affairs, which is to say the interface socket between drug development and the FDA. I've spent countless hours at the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices at CDC. I understand the CDC world quite well. So I'm kind of a, a weird amalgam of, of uh, expertise in both the discovery research side as well as the advanced development side with a healthy dose of uh, insider inside the Beltway Gubby stuff. I've won over $2 million in, in grants and contracts or managed them. Uh, I uh, often have in the past sat on study sections for NIH in the area of vaccines and biodefense. So this is kind of my landscape. And I've been through countless numbers of outbreaks and, and outbreak responses and pandemics and all that kind of stuff. So for me, this is kind of old hat. I've seen it before, although I've never seen anything like this. Well, you, you, your credentials run deep. I, I'm a railroad mechanic, a part-time Uber driver, and a podcaster, so mine can be pretty much encapsulated into that. But it's amazing what you do. And obviously, uh, this pandemic has changed all of our lives across the world here. How, how has this pandemic, how are you different now than as a family man, uh, just as, as your career? How, how has it affected your life the most pre-COVID and where we are today? Uh, I pretty much destroyed in many ways my old consulting career 
sector, although it seems to be starting to come back. I've, I, for over 20 years, I was operating as a freelance consultant uh, with my, together with my wife, and we were basically a small consulting practice specializing largely in telling the truth, uh, providing innovation and insight, mostly to executive level or C-suite people. And so it was a small step to go from, from that to telling the truth to the general public because uh, it's always kind of been my brand. The uh, I don't know what to say. I We did not, my wife and I work closely as a team and we put out the sub stack on a daily basis. Now that's become our main way, main way of making a living uh, is as writers and interpreters and public policy specialists because uh, the consulting business collapsed. The uh, And when I began speaking out, of course, then my government colleagues really had to distance themselves from me. Uh, um, I travel all the time now. It's it's really tiresome. Uh, You know, I was at, uh, I can't tell you, flying to Belgium on Friday, being there over the weekend and then flying back on Monday is not my idea of a good time. Uh, and um, I put over 150,000 miles since January. I'm just all the time traveling. Yesterday I had to pop up to Manhattan and back. I got up in the morning at 4:30 in the morning and got back home at two in, in, in the next morning. Um, it's it's just kind of a brutal uh, um, situation. We're about to go on. Uh, it's kind of like almost like campaigning for public office. The uh, um, our kids uh, really are are everybody has kind of gone into their own little hole, and, and uh, our our kids are more caught up in the narrative, uh, and so this has created distance between us, which is really unfortunate. It's torn apart, um, in particular, my wife's family. Uh, it's created barriers between our sons and us. Uh, it's, uh, um, and then and then there's the overlay that I found myself, because I was willing to speak out early on the Brett Weinstein podcast, uh, most notably, and then the Joe Rogan and these things, and, and just being honest about my interpretation of what was going on and trying to help people to understand the technology. I spent hours and hours and hours, I don't know, countless hundreds of hours on podcasts, teaching people what the RNA vaccine technology represents. And and uh, so that's put me in a position that some people are calling me, you know, using names like the global leader of the resistance and this kind of stuff. Um, and I do bounce around between the states and Europe quite a bit, so I'm kind of a bridge. And with that comes a lot of responsibility. I have to be careful about the words I use and also be very mindful of the importance of maintaining a spree de corps and trying to help people. It's a great opportunity for helping people. I never expected anything like this in my 60s. Uh, but, um, but, but the... Dealing with the media perhaps has been the most profound reveal. I think, and it's not just me, many of my colleagues, the physicians that have come together 
to fight all the disinformation that's being thrown at us and the gaslighting and everything. Often words come out to the effect of, um, as a metaphor, you're in a dark room and you back into the light switch and suddenly you see things and you can never unsee them. Or <clears throat> as, as Paul Merrick says, I used to wake up in the morning and I would read the New York Times and the Washington Post and I thought that was all true. And now I'm, I'm disconnected, I'm rootless. I know that they are constantly putting out lies. They're constantly pushing propaganda. And um, I think a lot of people and certainly many of the physicians that historically were uh, um, you know, liberal Democrat type people suddenly find themselves in an environment in which everything they thought they knew was true is false. And that that leaves people in a in a real state of kind of psychological freefall. Uh, you know, what is what is real in this environment where it's become clear to all of us that we're con- constantly subjected to this barrage of propaganda and and that the government that the reveal that the people that in the organizations that we had trusted and believed in within the government, particularly within health and human services, are so deeply corrupted. That's like in my case, you know, we just had a chat about what my background is. My my discipline, the, the field that I've spent my life dedicated to learning um, and practicing, polishing, you know, getting the certifications, all of the little check boxes that you need. Um, all of that that discipline, that field, has been profoundly compromised. And the, many of us in the in the this area um, that aren't in a, you know caught up in the narrative, caught up in the mass formation phenomena, uh, are left feeling. Um, you know, this kind of disconnectedness, what what can ever be done to repair the discipline in the industry that we dedicated our lives to? It's a it's a conundrum. Uh, so it's uh, you ask, what's what's the my life become? Constant travel, constant podcasts. We're in the middle of building a uh, fairly advanced studio now here on the farm. Um, I, I no longer have time to this time to spend with my horses that I'd love. Uh, fortunately, my wife and I, in, in many ways, a good thing, since this is a fatherhood broadcast. Uh, my wife and I, I think, if anything, have become closer. We, we now have a very intellectual life together. Not that we didn't before, but now we have this common cause in we wake up in the morning and we're just constantly talking about the latest information, the news, the politics, the data. What does it all mean? I'm trying to synthesize it and then writing it up on a daily basis on the Substack and getting it out to people. Uh, the the I the effect of art. I'm not bragging, but uh, the burden power and responsibility of between my wife and I, who we co-write the Substack article, who is Robert Malone, um, and put that on a daily basis. 
we often reach um, three to 500,000 people a day, day after day after day after day. And uh, that's hitting um, CNN numbers. Uh, and with that uh, comes a lot of stuff. We have to be careful to get it right. We have to be constantly wary of striking a balance, not being overly political. And yet, uh, in in the face of the pressure of of the media attacks and the other things and the the censorship that's going on, it's hard not to be you know political and get a little angry. But you have to keep keep it in the box. So it's it's a it's really intensely disruptive. People early on would say things like, uh, you know, the naysayers would say things like, oh, he's just seeking attention, these kinds of things. I can tell you this is not a joyride. Uh, it's it's a it's an opportunity. Uh, it's a gift to be able to help people at this stage of my life in myself and my wife as a team. Uh, and and to help people all over the world make sense of this and, and uh, plan and integrate and um, comprehend and, and uh, it, you know, tra- helping train pe- people so they can think for themselves has been kind of our mantra. And uh, what, as somebody who's innately a teacher, and that's that's kind of how I'm wired. Is I love to teach and mentor people. It's like I'm mentoring a substantial fraction of the world right now, um, and it's a little weird. It's weird to walk into the airport, almost every airport, or onto the plane or whatever, and have stewardesses and pilots and general passengers recognize me. It's not, you know, you might think, oh boy, that's neat to be famous. Um, Sometimes you kind of wish that you were a little anonymous. <laughs> uh, so so it's been a strange situation, I think. Well, I, I'll tell you what, Dr. Malone, just as you said there, too, that it, this whole thing has become about misinformation, disinformation and for parents to try to figure out. It seems as if anything that wasn't said by Dr. Fauci or the CDC is deemed as misinformation. And just for Actually, me, I, if I can jump in on that, what you just said is profoundly true. Because the arbiter of mis- and disinformation is the Trusted News Initiative, this organization set up by the BBC that ties together all of the Western news outlets, corporate news outlets. And explicitly, if if any information is different from what the World Health Organization or the National Health Authority says, it is labeled as mis or disinformation, which should be censored. That is in the charter of the Trusted News Initiative, which, by the way, we're part of a lawsuit against them at the, at the moment. Well, I'll tell you, for me, the most eye-opening thing was when a while back, Mayor Bill de Blasio, the former mayor of New York, when I seen him on live TV at 10 o'clock in the morning eating a cheeseburger and saying that you could get this cheeseburger for free if you get the vaccine. 
And it was, and this is about health. And he's eating a cheeseburger at 10 in the morning telling you, hey, this could be yours. And I, I thought it, it almost looked like a Saturday Night Live skit. Like, I couldn't <laughs> believe that this was real. And they're legitimately trying to lure you. Now, we just seen Tickle Me Elmo on Sesame Streets getting the shot, telling you how great it is. And they're trying to get this into you. It just seems like over-the-top propaganda to me. And for parents yeah. that, are, that don't know, they just want to do the best thing, what's right for their kids. I mean, some of them are just doing it because they, they feel like if they don't do it, they're going to be shamed. I mean, I think the two president uh, or most present emotions during this thing were fear and shame. They made you fear you were going to die if you didn't get it. And they made you feel ashamed if you didn't get it, you were going to kill everybody around you. So parents really need to know what do they need to do to keep their children safe? I mean, is it for them to go and get this vaccine against their own wishes? What do you tell parents out there right now? Who do they trust? Uh that's a that that latter statement is a profound one. Who can we trust? Uh, and um, that's why I've been trying to emphasize uh, trying to help people, parents, um, it, particularly think for themselves, access the information, and make informed decisions themselves. And unfortunately, folks that are just trying to get by from day to day don't necessarily have the time to dive into all the data and everything. Um, you may not be aware, uh, I came out it's about a year ago now with a, about a three to four minute statement in which I said, uh, parents, you need to understand that if you have, allow your children to take these products, they may experience damage to their brain, damage to their immune system, damage to their heart, and damage to their reproductive system. And all of those things have been borne out by the data subsequently. And what I said in that brief video that went globally viral, uh, the I had the Israeli government attacking me, uh, um, was that Parents, you need to understand <clears throat> that the way these things have been ruled out, if your child is damaged, like Maddie DeGary was damaged, you are the one that is going to have to carry that burden. You're going to have to carry the burden financially for the rest of your life, and you're going to have to carry that burden morally because you will know that you proceeded, you allowed your child to have this product um, and you could have refused. Now they've, as you say, there has, they've pulled out all the stops to, uh, and disregard, this gets back to my point about seeing my discipline just destroyed and ground into the earth. The discipline of clinical research is built on a foundation of biomedical ethics that goes back to the Nuremberg trials, that is fundamentally based on the concept of people have bodily autonomy. So you hear all this talk about abortion and women's right to choose. The fundamentals in clinical research, fundamental bioethics, established over decades and decades, is that particularly for experimental products, which these remain experimental. They are not yet licensed, um, particularly for children. 
A fundamental precept is that you have the right to full informed consent. You must be granted informed consent, which means that's got two parts. You have to be allowed to be fully informed about the risks of the product. And you have to be able to make a conscious decision. And in the case of your children, the parents have to make that decision for them about whether or not to accept that medical product. In the state of California, they're trying to pass legislation so that I think it's down to 12 years old. People are allowed to, children are allowed to make that decision without their parents. But the problem is that if your child is damaged, the vaccine companies are indemnified. You can't go to them. Um, the government is, is indemnified. Everybody down the food chain is indemnified except for you. And you're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to carry the cost. You're going to have to carry the psychological burden. Now, since then, we've had all kinds of disclosures about information, about adverse events. And now, as we were discussing right before the start of the podcast, now we're starting to see more and more information come about uh, reproductive risks. But one of the things that has become much more clear in the ensuing years since I gave that statement is that your children are at, unless they have a pre-existing major condition like cystic fibrosis or cancer, they have virtually zero risk of dying from COVID. In fact, their immune systems are so strong, they shred, they kick this thing off and it actually gives them the superior form of immunity compared to the vaccine of the immunity from the recovered infected individual, what we call, many people now call natural immunity. Um, the children handle this really well. They have actually stronger immune systems. They have an organ right here in their neck called the thymus. that's much larger in children than it is in adults that teaches their T cells how to respond to things. And they are able to fight this off very well, but they are very much susceptible to the adverse events of the, the products, the vaccines. And so the incidents, most countries now are acknowledging the incidence of heart damage, clinical heart damage that would put your child into the hospital for boys is in the range of one to 3,000 to one 4,000 give or take, people, children, boys that receive the vaccine will have damage to their hearts from the vaccine. And that's clinical damage that puts them into the hospital, not the subclinical damage. Then there is growing evidence of all kinds of things that are still anecdotal. And so much of this is suppressed. Doctors are afraid to report these things. There's the young girls, the baby girls and young girls that suddenly start bleeding. There's the older women that start having menses after their menopause. And there is all the way through this, there's been reports from younger women, women in reproductive age, your wives and daughters that after taking the vaccine, they're having significant disruption of uh, their menstrual cycles. 
And the, the two things that are really worrisome that are coming out now is um, more and more information suggesting that there is reproductive damage. We don't know how long that lasts. Um, evidence suggesting uh, spontaneous abortions, particularly in the first trimester, and decreased semen counts in men and, and uh, you know, reproductive age young men. So uh, a number of reproductive risks. And then there is the odd observation. You know, many people in their daily lives are seeing that it's the highly inoculated that are the ones that are ending up more sick in the hospital or dying. Um, that's paradoxical, and there's some deep scientific reasons for that, but it kind of doesn't matter. That's the, I mean, we can all see with our eyes. You, you talk to your friends, um, you talk to your family, and, and this is what's being observed. But the other thing that I'm And by that, Doctor, about, you mean the booster shots, correct? Is that what you're talking about correct. there? Correct, yeah. The okay. people that have taken like four inoculations or more. Uh, then we also have these odd observations that the maternity wards seem to be getting cleared out. We're not having the babies. Um, and uh, that's still anecdotal, but it's really quite worrisome. Are we seeing a major drop-off in live births? And, and there's some suggestions now that we are. And also, too, Dr. Malone, there's all the, all these all of a sudden I know we've seen the uh, adult sudden death thing start happening where all these young athletes are. Right. Oh, we were seeing that. Is that being linked? Around? I mean, because if you mention that, oh, was he vaccinated? They're like, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist if you think it was the vaccine. But it seems like more and more of these young, healthy athletes, young men, young women are dropping dead. And one of the things they all have in common is they've recently been boosted. Right. So uh, what you just described is gaslighting. Um, this, uh, oh, you must be a fill-in-the-blank, anti-vaxxer, conspiracy theorist, whatever the pejorative is. When you observe something that uh, many other people are observing, this, there, as I was mentioning, one of the things that's most disconcerting for me is learning how compromised corporate media is learning how compromised uh, social media is. And there's more and more evidence coming out that these social media giants have close ties to the intelligence community and to the White House. And all of these strategies that have been deployed on us of censorship, defamation, gaslighting, etc., are coordinated and intentional. I have a friend that runs a group called Panda, which is one of the more uh, important and effective pandemic data analysis groups. Uh, they're out of South Africa, globally speaking. And he teaches and has the insight that you can, you can see sensitive topics that they want to suppress information about the way you can detect them is it's as if they surround them with an electric fence. And anybody that gets close to that topic, to that electric fence, to that underlying truth, they get a shock. Okay? They get something happens. Um, 
You you get told you're a conspiracy theorist. You get deplatformed off of Twitter, whatever the thing is. Okay, you get a shock saying, "Don't go there. You shouldn't say that. You shouldn't talk about those things." Okay, and and Nick's point is when you see that kind of stuff, that's when you know that there's something right there that you're touching on that is an underlying truth that they want to cover up or hide. It's akin to the metaphor that many people talk about when you're, you know, as if you're in a B-29 and you're on a bombing run uh, and you know that you're over the target when the flak is heaviest. It's that same kind of a metaphor. And when you, when you see these topic areas that you get close to and they hit you immediately, that's when you know there's something important there that they want to hide. Crazy stuff. One other thing here, Dr. Malone, is it seems like all common sense has kind of gone out the window during this pandemic. It's really been one big study of uh, psychology, watching people that, you know, uh, all of a sudden shift gears drastically. Like I'm talking about people that I know that uh, shoot dope, ride motorcycles high. And all of a sudden now they won't leave their place without a mask on to this day. And it's like, what has happened to you? Like what has what's gotten into you? You know, so and just for me, like applying common sense, like I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I've got my vaccines and I get my kids their vaccines. That that isn't doesn't seem to be the case. But it does seem to be that this this uh, COVID seems to pose, like you said, zero threat. I mean, people under 65 are more likely to die from alcohol-related deaths than they are from COVID-19. Yet alcohol sales went through the ceiling during COVID-19. And it seems to be about health. We don't hear about, like Joe Rogan was saying to you on the show, we don't hear about uh, eat right, exercise, sleep, drink water, hydrate. None of these things are coming out of the mouths of the so-called leaders of these health organizations. And it makes you just as a common citizen wonder what the hell's going on. Yeah. The the way, if if your vitamin D levels are up above 60 nanograms per mil, and you should, all your audience just, if the doctor says, I'm not going to run a vitamin D test for you, go get another doctor. Okay. Um, most of us are vitamin D deficient. We live inside. We're not outside working. You know, we're not bailing hay or riding horses or those things like once upon the time we all were. And most of us are vitamin D deficient. And there's, I don't know if you saw the article that for so many years we've all been taught the depression is due to a chemical imbalance in the brain. And now we learn that that's false. That's not true. Okay, all of that messaging that was given to medical students and so many people, that is why we put, you know, our children on Prozac. Um, that's all a lie. It sells a lot of Prozac. And one of the things that has been shown to be good for depression is, wait for it, vitamin D. Um, so the amount of vitamin D they give us on their milk is enough to keep in your children's milk is enough to keep them from getting scurvy. OK, but it's not enough to keep their immune systems running at 110 uh, percent. And you need to supplement it. And so getting your vitamin D levels drawn and supplementing to bring it up to the right level is absolutely one of the best things you can do to prevent your and your children from getting not only COVID, but any of these respiratory diseases. 
So there's a whole lot of stuff, as you point out, that has to do with wellness. I think one of the things that this has taught so many of us is we live in a in a world, in a paradigm, in a financial web uh, that's been constructed that's all about sickness. It's all about treating sickness. It's not about promoting wellness. And uh, if you if you flip it around and you focus on wellness, you can skate right through most of this stuff. And then the other thing that makes no sense at all is that for our grandparents and their elders, I shouldn't say that anymore, I'm getting there myself, uh, that uh, for the people at high risk, diabetics, et cetera, uh, that are at significant risk for this virus, what they need is early treatment. Early treatment with a wide range of drugs. It doesn't have to be the monoclonal antibodies, although they seem to work pretty good. Uh, Pavloxid, as we've seen, doesn't work so good for the likes of Tony Fauci and uh, Mr. Biden. Uh, um, but, uh, and that's, you know, we could go into the science of, that was totally predictable. But, uh, but these things that have been so actively suppressed, remember what I said? Anytime you get near one of the things they don't want you to know about, you get an electric shock. And that includes ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, fibotidine, and so many other things. Well, they launched an assault on all those things. I mean, that was right out of the gate. And just like you said, it's kind of like the common sense in you. When you hear these people telling you something, like it continues to shift where they're like, if you take the vaccine, you're not going to get it. Then when too many people were getting it, they said, well, you're going to get it, but you ain't going to spread it. And then it was, yeah, you're going to spread it, but you ain't going to get sick and die. from. So it kept changing. And, and now we see Biden gets it. He takes the medication. He gets the drawback. Bang. He's got it again. But yet he's still riding the pony. Uh, trying to convince everybody else to get what ain't working for him. And it's very, very mind boggling to see what's happening. <laughs> yeah. So you'll, you may recall that I said on Joe, you mentioned Joe Rogan. So we can talk about Joe Rogan, um, even though. Uh, uh, so so I did this piece on Joe Rogan. Right. And some people tell me that it's had over 100 million views. That it's probably the biggest podcast in the history of the world. Uh, despite the very active attempt to censor it. And one of the things that I said there, these few simple little words that made Silicon Valley and much of the corporate media just lose bladder control simultaneously was mass formation psychosis. This, uh, this theory of Matthias Desmond, who this is what he studies as an academic. He's a full professor and he's been studying the, the problem of masses and masses forming in totalitarian regimes and how that happens. Um, so I didn't invent this. This, this, and all the criticism came from the Guardian and others that, oh, this isn't real academic scholarship. Yeah, it's not real academic scholarship. It goes all the way back to Plato. Okay, <laughs> Hannah Arendt. Some of the top philosophers in the history of the world have been focused on this, and it's described in Plato's. A republic is described as the allegory of the cave. Okay, this is this is well well known. This problem of mass formation psychosis of people becoming hypnotized, and uh, it's something that this gentleman named Goebbels wrote a book on, uh, and was a very active 
active practitioner of uh, during the Nazi regime. He, you know, it, it is, come on, all of us know that, that we are constantly subjected to efforts to shape our thought. This is something that was described very nicely in the book 1984 by George Orwell. And it's it's very odd that it seems like we're no longer in a situation where George Orwell is a precautionary, but rather it's as if he's the 1984 book has become an operator's manual uh, for how to manipulate society. We're constantly subjected to it. And, and I'm sorry to say that some of the people that are most susceptible to this are the highly educated. Um, they, the academics and the highly educated fall victim to this a lot more than the cab drivers do. Uh, and I don't know why. They're all caught up in, I guess, believing that they can, can know, you know what's true and what's not true. I don't really understand why the highly educated seem to be more susceptible Acceptable to this phenomena, but it's true. And one of the things that seems to be—I was going to say—one of the things that seems to protect people is belonging to groups in society and maintaining those groups. And the groups that we've observed, as, as I travel all over the world and interact with all these other doctors, that are the least susceptible to this mass formation process, are the uh, communities of faith. The religious communities. Yeah, and, and they've come under attack too, as as well. As, but, but I'm just saying to your point there. Uh, I, I like I said, I mentioned I drive a lot of Uber on the side, and and just just at one point I was waiting at two o'clock in the morning at this <coughs> college party, and, and and this woman was making out with this dude like their plane was going down. So I'm waiting for them. She finally comes into the car, and I said, "We waiting for your boyfriend?" She goes, "No, that's just some guy I met at the party." And then she puts the mask on. She says, sir, sir, do you have a mask you could put on? And it just boggled my mind. Like, you're just making out with some dude you met at the party. Now you come into my car and you're asking for a mask. It's like things like that make you want to bang your head against the wall to be like, where are these people coming from with this stuff? But fast forwarding this right now, where we are, the current state of this pandemic or, or if we're at the end of it, it seems like. Unfortunately, it is tied politically. Midterms are coming up. I think we can all kind of see the writing on the wall. We're starting to see certain governors are starting to wear masks again. The theater is starting to continue. Where do we go from here? What is the next phase of this COVID-19 as you see it? Are they going to come up with five, six, seven booster shots? Are they finally going to backpedal on the boosters? Where do you see this thing playing out from this moment going forward? So the government has already purchased from Pfizer and Moderna over four billion dollars worth of vaccines. They purchased these vaccines that are designed to boost all of us right before the midterms. These vaccines have not been engineered yet. They have not been manufactured yet. They're not going to be clinically tested. They're just going to deploy them on us. They are what's called trivalent. So they have the original Wuhan strain plus Omicron BA.4 and Omicron BA.5, both of which are likely to be gone from the population come fall. They're already pretty much flushed out in many countries like South Africa. And yet the government in its infinite wisdom has already bought these vaccines and is going to push them on all of us, including our children. 
right before the midterm. So I think that you can expect a ramp up of, of what I call the fear porn, the scare. Then we're seeing scare uh, tactics, fear porn being rolled up for the monkeypox in a very similar way with even less of a threat unless you happen to be in that particular high risk group. We both know what I'm talking about. Um, I think that what has, and part of the reason for this is because there is apparently a need on the part of the government and the administrative state, which is the group of the part of the government that really runs everything. It's these long-term bureaucrats that can't be fired. There's only a couple thousand of them, and they literally run the country. They have their own flag. The senior executive service has its own flag. Okay, um, these people run the country. I think the case can be made. They actually control the president, not the other way around, particularly with Mr. Biden. And uh, these folks are dug in. They have pushed this whole narrative on us, and it has turned out to be a pack of lies that's caused excess deaths. It's damaged us. It's damaged our children. And uh, I think they're in a position where they feel like, as a group, that they have to continue to promote these narratives and push these lies, even though the data demonstrating that they're wrong is becoming overwhelming. And uh, they have as their allies the corporate media. The corporate media is owned and it has close ties, as does the big tech, Twitter, Facebook, um, etc. Google have close ties with the intelligence community. So the intelligence community, the administrative state, and then going up to World Health Organization, World Economic Forum, this is all a big uh, interwoven matrix of people that seem to believe in the idea of a group of unelected bureaucrats being able to make decisions for all of us. Um, about what we should eat, where we should live, how we should live our lives, how we should raise our children, the kinds of things that our children should experience in school, all these things that so many of us are upset about, um, particularly, for instance, the latest, most egregious example is the various education that's going on about um, transgender issues in our very young. Uh, this is bizarre. Why are we talking about sex education for third graders? I mean, it's just, when did that happen? Um, you know, let alone sex education about transgender and gender changing, uh, you know, uh, interventions. When did that happen? It's, it's all wrapped up in this idea that they're a group of people um, unelected, should be empowered to make decisions for all of us about how we should live, how we should raise our children, how we should spend our money, what we should eat, um, what kind of vehicle we should drive. I mean, let's just pick at that one for a minute. The whole, you know, you, you, you probably, uh, if you're a good Uber driver, you're probably driving a, uh, something that is uh, um, 
electric or or uh, flex fuel or something like that. There's a strong incentive for you to do that. So for all the folks that have gone out and bought Teslas, well, that's all fine and dandy when you have plenty of electricity. But as California and Texas just found out, when the going gets hot, they say, don't plug your car in. Um, and because we don't have enough power, we don't have enough electricity. And when you run the numbers, if we were all to jump into Teslas, uh, you know, and, and be able to go zero to 200 in, in 2.6 nanoseconds or whatever it is, um, uh, get whiplash from our cars. Uh, if we were all to have Teslas, the only way that they can provide all that power is by putting in a bunch of nuclear power stations. Uh, nobody ever thinks that through. And, and is that really good risk benefit? I think what we've got is a situation where a bunch of unelected bureaucrats have wrapped their heads around a world in which they believe that if they only had enough data on all of us, they could use artificial intelligence and machine learning and all that good stuff to figure out the optimal, the, the greatest good for the greatest number. And they just need more data on all of us. And they need a little digital ID for you and me and everybody else and gather all the data they can on all of us and then run their little algorithms and figure out the best way for all of us average folks uh, to live in, in what, how we should live and how much power we should use and how much food we should eat. Meanwhile, the folks that are up there making the decisions that are controlling all this that are the globalists that have billions of dollars, they get to go party and do whatever they want to do. And uh, that seems to be the world that they want to live in. They think we should all live in. And what it is, if you think about it, if you deconstruct all of this, it is the idea of a command economy. These people really believe that they're smart enough to figure out um, what should be made, when and where. And there was an experiment about that kind of command economy thinking done during the 20th century, and we called it the Soviet Union, and it failed. But unfortunately, a lot of these people, from what I'm seeing, think that the Central Communist Party and the government of the People's Republic of China represents the model for how we should all live. And they seem to want us to live in the kind of system that the Chinese live under. Frankly, I'm not okay with that. Neither am I. And it's scary stuff. And I like what you're saying there. The, the main like uh, philosophy of either socialism or communism is basically saying that we think that people are too stupid to be able to know what to do with their own money. So we're going to put the money in the hands of the powerful state. Whereas capitalism comes in and says, we think the people are smart enough to know what they're doing with their money. So we're going to put the money, the capital in the hands of the people and not in the hands of the state. And I think that's the way that we need to be. That's what we've been always about in the country. But this, and you touched on a lot of things there, too. As a father of four, the transgender thing, it drives me nuts because they have changed. I'm in New Jersey. Last year, they put in anal sex education for eighth graders. They put stuff in the in the education docket that you wouldn't want to read out loud. You'd probably get banned on Facebook for reading what's in some of this stuff that they want to teach the third graders. That's a whole nother topic for a whole nother show. But getting back into the COVID-19 piece of this, obviously, there's been attacks on you, your character, your family, uh, conspiracy theorists, what have you. I would love I think America would love to see 
you be able to sit down and have a debate uh, an open debate with Dr. Fauci to go one on one. If that was the case and that ever happened, what would be your opening statement in that debate? What would be your opening a go to piece I'll of information? You, I'll, tell you what my position, I'll tell you what my position would be. I grew up in California and we didn't cover that. I used to be a farmer and a ranch hand and a carpenter. And I grew up in California. In California, we got a lot of rattlesnakes. And you don't have a discussion with a rattlesnake. You either avoid the rattlesnake or you get yourself a shotgun. Okay. <laughs> Sitting down with Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci is a snake. He will say anything. He's basically, I mean, you're there in New Jersey. So I'm going to say something that's not very political. But as a New Jersey resident, you're going to get it immediately. Dr. Fauci is a mafiosi. That's how he's lived his entire life. He has capos. He has lieutenants that operate for him. That is how he structured his world. Okay, he, he comes out of that rough world that you live in right now. New Jersey is not for the faint of heart, at least not the New Jersey that I just flew into when I flew into Newark yesterday. Um, and, uh, that it's it's a you know that New Jersey New York world is rough and tumble, and that's what Fauci comes out of, and he plays hardball. I'm really not interested in debating a liar. What I'm interested in is an opportunity that may occur, or we'll see what happens in the elections, to be able to influence Health and Human Services or one of the divisions and start to restore integrity, start to restore a culture that is focused on honesty and transparency and not this web of lies and spin. I think one of the problems that we've had throughout our government is that the, uh, the world, the, in DC, everybody has become uh, like a, uh, um, like a press operative where everything is being spun all the time. Truth is whatever you say it is. Um, reality is whatever you can make it to be. And we, we can't run a country like that. We can't run a country in which truth is just something that is fabricated, just like uh, somebody might fabricate a story for the New York Times or CNN, uh, or or the White House press officer would spin, you know, the latest uh, like like redefining what is a recession. I mean, that's a great example. This has become the culture of our government. That the truth is is irrelevant. It's whatever you can make it. It's whatever you can say. And being held accountable, being honest, speaking truth. Uh, being grounded in data. How can a society survive if we we throw data to the wind? We don't care anymore. Um, and that's that's what I'm interested in. I think that's the root cause is integrity, loss of integrity, and the belief that we can, it's okay to lie. That seems to have just gone all through our government, every little way. It's okay to lie. 
It's okay to get in bed with the people that you're supposed to be regulating. It's okay to live in this revolving door world. It's, you know, it's, it's all about uh, the money. And somehow we've got to break that. We've got to get back to a world of real things and a world of people that actually do stuff. Uh, and we have to get back to a world that respects people that, that there's this discussion that there's now two worlds, the analog world and the digital world, the laptop class and people who actually do stuff. Okay. And the, unfortunately the laptop class controls the money. They control finance, all those kinds of things. And they live in their own little weird bubble and they're busy. They're frustrated and they're busy trying to figure out levers and in reins and different ways that they can control the likes of us that actually do stuff. It, it was one of the oddest things throughout this COVID crisis that we had the coming together of the doctors and the truckers. You know, how does that happen? In what kind of a world do you have the doctors and the truckers allies uh, working together? What brings them together? I think one of the key things is they both work for a living. You know, <laughs> they're not there just, you know, figuring out online um, how to squeeze an extra buck here and there out of some transaction or come up with some derivative thing that's going to, you know, bankrupt all of us in our in our homes, etc. Um, while it makes them rich. <clears throat> Bankers, I mean, doctors and truckers both live in the analog world. So the some of the people that, that, you know, pack boxes at Amazon or drive Uber, whatever, the, the, you know, there's a bunch of us that actually work for a living. And then there's a case can be made. There's a parasite class. And somehow we've let the parasites be in charge. And we got to fix that. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, we, we, it's, we live in a time where it's never been easier to get information, but it's never been harder to get the truth. And it's just such a paradox, the way that that exists in and of itself. Uh, but as you were saying there, too, not only the definition of recession has changed, the definition of girl has changed, the definition of vaccine has changed. And it just seems like that's the method of where they're going. And, and I know that, you know, I'm up against it here. We're going a little longer than I had hoped. And I want to close this out here by asking you. I always ask the dads that I get on the podcast. Maybe we could tie this into uh, COVID if you want or, or the vaccines if you want to. But uh, what advice do you have out there for that new dad or for that about to be father who's listening in? OK, thank you for that opportunity. Um, I think those of us in new media and you and I are are two examples. The podcast is new media. The podcast is this incredible disruptive technology that's speaking directly to people, cutting out those journalists, which are also part of the digital laptop class, going direct to people. One of the things that we have to convey in this hard time is hope. Um, I really feel strongly People need to feel connected and they need to feel hope. They need empathy for dads and moms. Um, you know, take care of your children. This as as somebody who's now a grandfather who's been through this, 
there's all everybody always likes to get wrapped up in their career. Oh, I'm going to become the great uh, Santini, whatever. Um, the only, the main job you've got right now is to bring up the next generation is the most important thing you can do. It's way more important than having a career. And if you if you recognize and focus on your children and being kind to your children, empathetic to your children, teaching them values, teaching them the importance of right and wrong, why it's important not to lie. Um, you're going to pass on to the world a generation that is able to pick up the, the baton and carry it forward. But if you allow your children to live in the basement on Facebook or Twitter or whatever the latest Twitch is um, and, uh, you know, live in this digital life uh, of fantasy, um, you're going to produce these these children that we have now. That I think is the uh, here's what I think the underlying problem is one of the big ones. We've raised a group of children as a consequence of this kind of helicopter parent idea where we have to protect them from anything bad that's going to happen. And they believe that they have the right to be protected from any ideas even that make them uncomfortable. That that anything that makes them uncomfortable, they should be protected from. And life is not like that. You know, life is a rough and tumble business. And so I guess my message to dads and moms is, is just remember job one are those children. And, and we all have to own that. And if you, I, I can tell you from my wife and I, one of the things that gives us uh, the greatest comfort in our 60s now is having made the decision to choose our children over our careers. Yeah, uh, very well said. I love the message. This has been an honor for me. I got to say, Dr. Robert Malone, you're a first-class father all the way, and thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time here on First Class Fatherhood. Thank you, sir. You have been listening to First Class Fatherhood. First Class Fatherhood is a family-made media podcast. Please visit www.firstclassfatherhood.com or www.familymade.com to find out more details. You can order First Class Fatherhood advice and wisdom from high-profile dads on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Proverbs 22.6 tells us, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will never depart from it. God bless, and I'll catch you next time.